0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. gonna read you a few sentences from a uh, piece that ran today. This is, uh, this is from the Toronto Star. Economists are growing increasingly concerned that the Bank of Canada's aggressive campaign to raise interest rates will plunge the economy into a recession. On Monday, RBC's economics arm warned clients that an economic soft landing where the Bank of Canada hikes interest rates and lowers inflation without causing an economic downturn is becoming, quote, increasingly unlikely. They are saying now, and i back to my words, uh, this seems to be almost a sure thing that a recession is looming. So there you go. Happy Wednesday. Uh, Eric Cam is an associate professor and the director of the International Economics and Finance undergraduate program at Toronto Metropolitan University. He joins us now. Thanks for this, as always.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Scott.
0: So here's the conundrum that we face here in this country. We've got inflation that is a big problem that is running wild. And to combat inflation, we have the Bank of Canada raising interest rates that could lead us into a recession, which seems like it leads us with one of two options. Do we want a recession or do we want inflation? It seems like we're going to have to take one. Which one do we want?
1: Well, that's actually a really good point, except you're going to get both. You're just going to get them in an order that is really now, uh, in a sense, predetermined. I mean, as soon as the Bank of Canada looked at the monetary stimulus that was provided during the pandemic, and they knew then, they knew then, a long time before the interest rate hikes set in, that this was going to create some level of inflation. And then they, of course, uh, sat down with their computers and came up with some number that, as we now know, is far too low. The problem is, is that we are the physics lab in economics and things have to play out. They can't, we don't, we can't control them in the real world. So as soon as those, those almost trillions of dollars were put into the marketplace, inflation was going to happen. So the only question was how strong would it be? And so everybody waited and then it kicked in And then the Bank of Canada said, "Uh uh-oh, this is far bigger than we could ever expect. What do we do? And that's why last Wednesday, Scott, was so meaningful. Because in raising rates another 75 basis points, the Bank of Canada said two things. Number one, this is out of control and getting beyond what we can do to stop it. And number two, signaling to Canadians, if we are going to stop it, it's going to take interest rate hikes so strong, so severe that it is probably going to cause a recession. So the answer is you're going to get both, but you're not going to get them instantaneously. First, inflation has to play its way through the system, then the interest rate hikes, then eventually they're going to have an effect on markets such as the labor market, and then we're going to spiral into recession. So that's a really long answer to a really short question of yes, inflation, and then yes, recession.
0: But it would certainly sound like, based on what you just explained, it would sound like those behind the Bank of Canada decision-making would be saying recession, if we know it's coming, recession is better than inflation.
1: They might be saying that, or it might be their way of saying that this is somewhat out of control. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the Bank of Canada, only to the extent that they have to play with across the street a federal government that really has shown absolutely nothing in the way of offering some some remedy to the inflation. So you've got the Bank of Canada basically playing two roles at once, saying we're going to play the role of the central bank and of the government. So I think what you're seeing now and what you're hearing now is a clear admission by the people that handle our monetary policy uh, of just how bad things are, how out of control they are, and tipping their hat to saying, if you want us to do what is on the front of our webpage, which is get inflation back to 2%, there's a general rule in macroeconomics, Scott, something's got to give. And eventually what it's going to give is consumption, and then the labor market, and that's called a recession.
0: Should people from the Bank of Canada have a, not a political role, but should they be sending notes and emails and having phone conversations with people in government advising some of these things you're talking about as we're going through what we're going through should they be injecting themselves into this discussion to say here's what's coming if you do what you're doing
1: well i think that they should and i think that they do although my sources at the bank don't tell me many things see the problem is is that you've got a lot of people with a lot of, of their fingers in the proverbial pie In terms of the economy, you've got the Treasury and you've got other branches of government that keep an eye on the economy. But it really is the central bank that's responsible for the policies of the economy. So do I think they communicate? Yes. But do I always think they're on the same page? No. And sometimes, Scott, as you know, perception is reality. And you have the prime minister come out with, quite frankly, an asinine comment like, we're not in the business of monetary policy or we're, we're too busy right now to worry about monetary policy. That might be, unfortunately, the most honest thing the man has ever said, because that's exactly what the economy looks like right now. It looks like the government has turned the page into other things and just told the Bank of Canada do the best job you can. And I actually believe the bank is doing the best job they can, which tells you how severe a problem it is right now.
0: Well, and part of the reason I asked that question a second ago was we just heard this week that in order to help with inflation, the federal government has said it's going to inject, I think it's, you know, programs for another, what is it, $4.5 billion that were not accounted for in the budget, which seems to be where we got here in the first place. The more money you dump in, more money you just throw into the pot, the higher the inflation. It seems like it's it's a defeating thing. I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to help people by bringing bills down but in the long term, it sounds like they're putting out the fire, li- literally the old phrase, putting out the fire with gasoline.
1: Well, you're right. And that was actually an excellent song and movie, but that's another it story. It really was. What's, what's going on? That's my favorite David Bowie song. But what's going on? That's right. It becomes almost self-fulfilling in a way. The more money that you pump into the economy, the more you're going to have a propensity to have uh, more dollars chasing fewer goods. And so now let's not forget, that the supply chain problem is still there. It's better, it's better, but it's not perfect. So really, isn't it a perfect confluence of too many dollars chasing too few goods, and those too few goods are lower than they've ever been? So you've got demand issues, you've got supply issues, and not to make it sound too simple, but it really is basic textbook economics. If you have demand increasing and supply decreasing, that is a recipe for what we call stagflation. Prices going up and real GDP going down. And Scott, that's exactly, exactly what you're going to see in real terms.
0: All right. Well, we got time for one more here. And that is, um, I read something yesterday, I think, that the numbers of Canadians retiring is up 50% over where it normally is. And I, I'm assuming that's got something to do with everyone worked at home. And then at the end of COVID, they decided, you know, I kind of like this and I'm at the age I can do this. So I'm going to just get out now. Is that going to help us if we do get into this recession, which usually leads to job losses, is it going to actually help us if all those people have voluntarily vacated the job market so that we're going to have jobs for people who want to have them still?
1: You know, it's funny, I've thought about that as well, and I don't I, I really don't want to guess, but my my first inclination, just thinking about how the economy works, is I don't think it's going to be a wonderful thing, but I don't think it's going to be a terrible thing. I mean, I, a lot of things are going on right now. I mean, you're right. A lot of people don't want to go back to work. They've been working from home, and they're quite comfortable doing it. And then there's also a sector of the economy that doesn't get talked about enough, people that are looking for jobs and can't find them, or people that have part-time work and can't, uh, can't find full-time work. And we call these people discouraged workers. And yes, they're dropping out of the labor force very quickly. But I will conclude with this thought, The faster that people drop out of the labour force, Scott, the faster we erode the tax base. And right now, the only sector growing in the economy is the public sector, and you can rest assured this is going to slow that down as well.
0: That is Eric Kam from Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University, but now it's TMU. So there you go. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for doing this. Always appreciate your time.
1: Always fun. Stay
0: healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the most interesting, fascinating conundrum cases, legal issues I want to talk about here. It's from San Francisco. Here's what happens. A woman a number of years ago, back in uh, 2016, was sexually assaulted. She was raped. And as a result, she had her DNA collected so they could separate it from the rapist so they could find that person. It ended up, all of their DNA ended up in the system. Well, more recently using modern technology and DNA policing going into those places where like they found the golden state killer and stuff, you know how this works now. This woman who was the sexual assault victim has been arrested for being involved in a robbery where evidence was left behind that showed that she was there. She is now suing the police saying, I gave you. My DNA to solve one crime, you've used it to solve another crime. What do we do with this? i want to bring in Jeff Manishin, local defense lawyer. Everybody knows of Jeff Manishin. I am sure he joins us now. Jeff, thanks for doing this today.
2: Certainly, Scott. Very interesting issues. A whole series, not just the one you've raised.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, it really is because this is this is what you get anytime you start to advance technology. You open new doors and new Pandora's boxes, and you're going to end up, first of all, with stuff, whether it's this or something else. It's always an exploration when new technology is in, 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 entered into the system.
2: Oh, yeah, and, and as well, when you have a, a police investigative technique, that involves the retrieval of, we might characterize as the most personal information we characterize it. You know, DNA certainly is. That's your genetic identity. And they're using it to be able to solve crimes. You get into a question of an overlap. If we went back to the Golden State situation, the Golden State Killer, for example, you have a kind of an overlap as to police investigative interests and privacy interests and business interests. Because we might say, well, you know, some of those, the one, two, three, and me or the other companies are encouraging people, say, send in your DNA and we'll see if we can find comparable connections with other links to other family members you might not know you have. Can we provide you an assurance of privacy? Well, certainly we don't intend to give out your information just holos bolos. Police are able to say, yeah, but we'd like to be able to get access to that. And we're simply sending you what we have, by we have a DNA profile, any matches. And from the standpoint of an individual's privacy, the individual suspect or target might say, so "Just a sec, you know, you're making a DNA comparison. I have a privacy interest in whatever might be preserved there. How do you untangle it? Well, that individual may well not have sent anything in, but a family member may have.
0: So right. Wind or up in with this an investigation case,
2: investigation that leads to the ultimate suspect. That's the that we'll start with that one as a, an overlapping and complex issue in and of itself.
0: Well, or this one where you're a victim that, that, so, and, and for the people who don't, and I'm assuming most people know what we're talking about, what has been happening with some police departments is those things like Ancestry or 23 me or whatever, people know about them. I don't think these ones are exactly giving it up, but nonetheless, police are taking DNA from a crime scene, creating a person, sending that DNA in which then leads to familial connections on here. And then they can start exploring, oh, which family member might've been in the area of the crime. It's, it's a fascinating, brilliant concept. But as you say, it's the concept comes with issues. So well, let's talk about two of them here. You mentioned one of them. I, uh, my third cousin has sent in a genetic thing. I've never agreed to have my DNA put into the system, but suddenly- police are knocking on my door because somehow an investigation has led to me because of someone else's dna do i have a right to be upset about that
2: and let's spend uh, we'll complete the loop as it were scott because don't forget to be able to get yours what police will do is they may follow you around and look for you to discard a straw or cigarettes or something that may well have your dna on it that you're discarding and throwing away Because they have to bring it back to you. Right,
0: unwittingly, right. Unwittingly,
2: and if you've discarded it, have you given up any proprietary privacy interests and stuff you've discarded? It could be argued you have. They pick that up. Now they're going to make the comparison to something submitted by somebody unconnected to you entirely. It may be tough for you to be able to argue, I have a privacy interest in what somebody else sent in.
0: I don't know that you do. So, what if I'm a victim, though? What about well, in now, this let's, case let's, where so I'm that's, a victim? That's our,
2: that's our Golden State Killer in that situation. Let's take the victim situation. And in some way, Scott, I'm going to suggest that might be a little bit easier. And I'll say it in the following way. The, the, the victim provides a sample of her DNA, but it's only for a limited purpose. She hasn't consented to giving a sample of the DNA for all purposes. She's consented for the purpose of facilitating a criminal investigation. And it could reasonably be said on her behalf she did not consent to any broader investigative use than that. And to the extent the police took something, she gave her purpose A and used it into purposes or their own purpose, which is B. Is, well, well, we got her DNA. Let's just take a look and see if she's involved in anything else. She didn't give it to them on that basis. In fact, if we wanted fairly into the realm of informed consent, if they contemplated, we'd like your DNA sample to assist us investigating the sexual assault. Oh, but by the way, we're also going to use it to see if you committed any other crime. She might well say, "I'm not going to provide it," but she didn't know. Got me.
0: But. I do, but here's where it becomes so difficult though, because, okay, in this case, she was involved in a property crime. It, it was not, you know, it's not an earth shattering kind of thing, but how different is this story per So a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, they shouldn't have done that because that was, you know, not that big a deal. What happens if you find out that the person who submits their DNA, if she had if her dna aligned with a serial killer let's say someone who killed three or four people i think a whole lot of people then say wait we want them to use whatever techniques they possibly can to get those people off the street it's a different story if it's a much more serious crime much more complicated
2: to take that scott and i'll give you an analogous argument look so the police didn't really have much in the way of reasonable grounds to search the person's home but it was still a murder so we want them to be able to use the blood and fiber and weapon evidence they found in the home because it's a murder we don't work backwards from the outcome. We work forwards from the process. And so we work forwards from the police can't do a warrantless search of a home to be able to get evidence. Similarly, if the DNA sample is provided for a narrow purpose, we aren't going to work, we aren't going to say, well, but if the police investigate when they shouldn't have and find something good, they can use it. No, no, no. They shouldn't be allowed to do the investigation at all. That's the key, you see. You think about it what's the privacy interest the complainant is giving up. She is providing this DNA profile for a limited purpose. And unless the police say to her in advance, by the way we need to advise you that you give us give it to her for purpose A, you will use it for purpose B, I would believe they can't use it for purpose B.
0: What about though for those who would say, yeah, but if we were to throw open the gates to this, Uh, we could solve thousands of crimes, perhaps. We could, all those people who have been victimized, so many of them could have their crimes solved if we just said, "Ah, I'm not too worried about it. And that's the important thing, to solve the crimes.
2: I'll give you a comeback to that one, Scott. Don't we want to encourage women who have been subjected to sexual assault to report it and to be able to provide such evidence as they can because this guy may be a serial rapist and the DNA she provides might be able to be connected because it might be found on our suspect's clothing and prove the case and stop them from doing serial rapes. But she may well not want to because she's not sure how they might use the DNA sample for other purposes. that might reflect back on her. Don't we want to encourage the reporting of sexual offenses? And don't we want to deal with it from a pure fairness standpoint? If you're going to give us a sample of your DNA, we need to know the terms on which we can or can't use it. We have a Latin phrase called ad idem, when the parties are of the same mind. Well, you have to be of the same mind with respect to potential use of private information like DNA. It's a,
0: you know what, it's such a fascinating one because you're, I mean, look, your point is very well taken at the end, that if, if all of a sudden women, for example, in this case, women who have maybe done something in the past that has broken the law, do we want them if they're sexually assaulted to say, no, because I have a black mark on my past, I can't, in, I can't be a victim. I can't go through with this nobody would want that so it's it, it is it is a truly it is a truly interesting and truly difficult conundrum at the same time as I say I think a lot of people would say yeah but we want to solve crimes I don't know well I, we probably do know where this will go but I don't know how you fully resolve this it's something we can't um, we got to go right now. I wish we had a lot more time because it's such a fascinating story. Go look it up. If you if uh, there's a story at spec.com. woman whose rape DNA led to her arrest sues San Francisco. You can read all about the story right there. Uh, Jeff Manishin, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for Absolutely, taking some time. Scott.
2: We always have terrific discussions, and this one's another one in the series.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I've seen just in the last, you know, a little while, a number of reports of outlines of studies I, I i'm not gonna pretend that i've been diving into the nitty-gritty of all the details of the studies but the overview i've seen a bunch of these things about and this is not new about how as i say music is doing or can do or they're finding that it can do some remarkable things for people who have memory loss dementia alzheimer's those kind of things that for some reason music is the tool that is breaking through that allows these people to have a response. I want to bring in Dr. Rachel Finnerty. She's a music therapist. She's a psychotherapist. She is soon to be Dr. Rachel Finnerty, I am told. Soon to be. So next time she's on, it will be Dr. Finnerty. But for now, it's almost Dr. Finnerty. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: This is um, this is such a fascinating um story and such a fascinating concept. And as I say, we've heard about this for a while now. Why does does it happen? Why does it seem that music is the thing that can break through a wall that seems impenetrable and that people who are seemingly gone suddenly return?
3: Yeah. So with dementia, areas of the brain are dementing. And as a result, we see cognitive decline and it results in issues in regards to speech and memory as you mentioned but when we learn a piece of music when we um, learn when we hear a song and we memorize that that piece of music we become familiar with it we use so many different parts of the brain that the areas that are affected by a dementia are not impacting the ability to recall a song, to recall the lyrics, or to sing that piece of music. So those areas of the brain are so healthy. The areas of the brain that we use to recall a piece of music and to sing a piece of music or to play a beat, to um, play a a piece of uh, a percussive instrument, all of those abilities remain intact despite the cognitive decline associated with dementia.
0: All right, let's get into something really basic here. And like, I understand that you are a music therapist. You're not a, a, a an expert per se in Alzheimer's or dementia. But mm-hmm. it, when that happens, when someone has Alzheimer's, when someone has dementia, is it always the same part of the brain that begins to break down? Or can it be in different parts of the brain that that happens?
3: Well, so dementia is an umbrella term. And then within that uh, umbrella term, there's many different types of dementia. So one can have a dementia as a result of a cardiac arrest. They could have a dementia as a result of Parkinson's disease or they may have a specific dementia such as Alzheimer's. So depending on their specific uh, diagnosis, um, that will have a different area of the brain that is impacted and the symptoms will be slightly different. And even within that, there's no strict... Um, progression so each person who has parkinson's or has a specific type of a dementia or alzheimer's each of their journey is a little bit different so how quickly it progresses how it impacts them um is going to be a little bit different
0: but and this is indelicate i suppose but if part of your brain then depending on what your dementia is if a certain part of your brain is shot which is essentially kind of what happens is the reason that music is still able to connect because it's as you said it's using so many different parts of the brain that even if a part of your brain is now totally out of service we can find the musical connection elsewhere
3: absolutely so the healthy areas of the brain can compensate for the other areas of the brain and for some reason the areas of the brain that are responsible for all these diverse aspects of music are not at the forefront of of um, of the the dementia. So we don't see, so for example, the areas of the brain responsible for speech and memory are often uh, firstly affected. But as far as being able to sing, right, all the different areas that are involved in singing, those areas remain intact, or, as we were just saying, they're being compensated for through the other areas of the brain that are healthy.
0: And we've seen this in other things, not just, I mean, we've, we've seen stories. Uh, I know that this year, I don't know if anyone listening is, you know, uh, a uh, America's Got Talent fan. We, you know, it's on in the house occasionally, but there was a girl who was on there who had a terrible stutter where she could barely speak,
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but could sing
0: just fine because yes. all of a sudden when you start to sing, I guess that's the same thing. It goes from the speech part of your brain to other parts of your brain that compensate.
3: Absolutely. It's a, it's a whole different, well, it's not a completely different system, but there are different systems in play that therefore the, the speech impediment is not an issue. It's not at the forefront and it can be completely overcome through singing. And I think When talking about uh, dementias or somebody who's had a stroke or a brain injury, what's really important about this is that often music is not actually used as a way to assess somebody's abilities. So it can often go unrealized that this person can still communicate with their loved ones. They still can communicate what they want to say or they can express themselves if they're given the opportunity to do so through
0: music is is there a uh, we're sort of jumping around but is, is that a possibility i mean as, as someone who works in this field do you look at the possibilities and say you know grandma may not be able to recognize me when i walk in or may not be able to have a conversation but if we sing to each other that maybe we can have a conversation i, I mean it, it sounds a little bit wild to walk in and no, it sounds no, like you're so, suddenly creating real. a musical in the seniors home but, yeah, that's,
3: um, well that's what that's what mu- that's what long term care centers should look like <laughs> it should look like a musical in there absolutely suddenly um, fame
0: breaks out in the seniors home
3: right <laughs> <laughs> and that, that would be amazing um, for everybody, for the care workers, for the family members, for the personal support workers, um, for the individual with dementia. Because this is a way that one can communicate, can be heard, can self-express, uh, despite the symptoms of a dementia. Um, so, for example, I have run music therapy groups. Where family members have been invited to at like, a long term care facility, for example. And, and, you know, sometimes family members, they, they break into, they start to cry, but they're tears of happiness and they're like, oh, I saw my mom today. Like, my mom was here in the group. Like, I haven't seen my mom. She's hmm. been hidden behind dementia for so long, but I saw her today when she was singing and then. Not only singing, but after singing, often that brings about um, these other cognitive abilities to recall memories that are associated with that piece of music.
0: So okay, then, so let me let me throw this at you then, with that thought, because again, I'm having these wild ideas that could. you, Are you suggesting literally that if, again, let's say that your mother or someone's mother is in there, or father is in there, and they are sort of you would think gone, they've just sort of they're not what they were they're they've got dementia whatever if you do you really believe that if someone were to walk in and begin singing hello to their parent or having a conversation but in a musical way mm-hmm. with a maybe even in a familiar tune yeah that that could really work
3: oh i don't believe it i've witnessed it i've experienced it 100 percent. and really? now I, oh yes yes no i i should put some parameters on that not Every person with dementia, depending on the stage of dementia that they, that they are in, will respond that way. But there is a large proportion of individuals with dementia that
0: do. It's just like it requires a certain level of confidence to walk into a room where other people can be hearing you. Because, you know, many of us aren't exactly fans of singing in public and having people hear our voice. But, I mean, honestly, it sounds um, it's an unbelievable thing to try, I suppose, if you're in that position, just to see if it would work
3: absolutely and and the thing is too, is you can be in um your loved one's room in a facility It doesn't need to be in the dining hall Right, of course lounge. um so one can when they're um engaging with a loved one um do they can sing and and do so in the comforts of of the of a room and and but I think in addition to that it's not. Just the singing, the hello, but like what you had had um, mentioned, but the familiar tune, mm. right? So not just kind of a right, random right. made-up hello song, but but yeah, using and first of all, starting with a familiar song, so singing whatever that piece of music might be, and that engages the brain, that engages the this cognition of um, oh, I recognize that, and there's memories that come with that. I'm able to engage in this, I'm I'm singing, I'm remembering the words. And for somebody with dementia to have the experience of knowing what's going on is that as well is worth its weight in gold. To have for for sure. very for sure. few opportunities in a day where somebody with dementia is feeling clear and is feeling like, oh, I can do this. Like I have full autonomy right now. And when somebody's engaging in music, they have that full autonomy. They're singing, and that person is singing how they want or how loud they want, They're and that they're able to recall those words. They're not struggling to recall them, and they're making sense. To
0: understand, though, Mm -hmm. to understand, if I came in, let's say, okay, let's say the song Happy Birthday, because everyone knows that tune, although I think if we sing it on the air, we have to pay like $100. But anyway, uh, but let's say, okay, we we come in and we sing Happy Birthday, but we change the words into a greeting. Would the person with dementia grasp the meaning of the words, or would they just recognize that it's a familiar tune?
3: Um, I think in that particular case, because Happy Birthday is so ingrained with a specific tradition, that the memories evoked would be to celebrating somebody's birthday so i think with that particular one that's a little tricky but um but for for example um if you were to be singing um uh like hail hail the gang's all here okay right and and then um Hello, hello to Scott. Hello to Scott. Hail, hail! The gang's all here. Hello, Scott. How are you? You can absolutely like change these words, use the familiar, familiar tune, um, as well as some of the original lyrics, and then um, engage with that person.
0: It's amazing. It's an amazing thought to have that that could that that could work. Do do different styles of music work better? as far as being effective in breaking through?
3: Yes. Um, So it's not necessarily the the genre or the style of music per se. So there's a few aspects. The first one is that it needs to be a piece of uh, music or a genre of music that has meaning to that person and that they like. Um, So, if they, you know, don't like country music, for example, then, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. stay, stay clear. Um, but yeah, so a genre music that they like, that they, uh, a song that they're familiar with, that's the first point. And the second is, is slowing it down. So when I just sing mm. Hail, Hail yeah. and, and saying hello to you, I sing way too fast. <laughs> um, so you're, it's going to be a little bit more slow. You're... You're making eye contact and you're looking for those cues and and repeating a lot of repetition. So it's not Mm. like, oh, we're just going to do this 10 second little verse and then expect something right away in response. We might sing it a few times and then have them sing with us and then we start to have these interactions. So um, we need to give the brain some time to warm up and start to recollect and engage. So, um, so yeah, there's some techniques there, and that's what music therapists are trained uh, to do. And I think if loved ones and staff members are to work with music therapists, they can learn some of these techniques to bring into communicating with their loved ones. Because-
0: Because I was even thinking that, okay, so let's say I don't go in and sing because I'm just not, you know, comfortable with that, but I want to bring in music that somebody who's in this position might be familiar with. Crazy thought, totally uneducated thought, but I'm thinking it would probably make more sense to me that it would be something that is very organized, classical maybe, or folk or maybe broader something that is very clear cut there's an easy melody as opposed to some sort of free-form jazz or heavy metal or something where it it seems like the brain would have to work harder to try and put the pieces together
3: yes well it would all come back to how familiar that person is Mm. with with that music so if they grew up with that complex music then it's it's there it's already for lack of a better word wired in for them to draw upon and and they can start to sing that back and um, so even for example uh, I, I've worked with people who had in their younger years sang in choirs but they sang in a, a different language other than in English for example um, English was their first language but then they, they learned something like you know Santa Lucia or you know a, um, a, a piece of music in Italian and But they could then still recall, so even though Italian is not their first language, even with dementia, they could recall and sing with me Santa Lucia and recall all the Italian lyrics um, because they had learned that piece of music so well um, prior to uh, dementia. So that's really the key piece is what were they engaging in? before having Mm. dementia
0: it's amazing okay so we only have a couple minutes left here one of the things and i understand again not as an expert but i understand that most forms of dementia are not genetic but there are some that can be made me wonder can you begin using music as a preventative thing if you believe that maybe there's some genetic predisposition in your family can you Somehow pre-wire your brain to be in a position where it could help you down the road if you did become right. dement- have dementia.
3: So what it, what appears to be the case is that engaging in in music definitely helps with our cognition, our cognitive ability, and our cognitive strengths, such as memory and and speech, but. We cannot say with any certainty if it's actually delaying the onset of dementia or if it's delaying or reducing the initial symptoms. We can't really say that with any um, confidence to, to my knowledge. But what does appear to be apparent is that if you do play an instrument, even if now you start to learn to play an instrument or you're uh, singing in a choir or elsewhere, even just for fun, you know, um, learning that skill for yourself, that then, if you do um, if if you do become diagnosed with dementia, that skill will stay with you. And so at least you will be able to tap into something meaningful. and it's you know, whereas so many other things that people enjoyed, like baking, cooking, or sewing, um, knitting, they they may not be able to continue that for for too long as the dementia progresses, whereas people in, in even quite later stages of dementia can often still bring forward their ability to play that instrument if they had learned learned that instrument. And sometimes they, they don't remember that they played an instrument. Sometimes I'll be like, we'll sit down at the piano together and I'll be like, why don't you join me? Oh, no, no, I don't play piano. Oh, well, I'll just start and, and let's see what happens. And then I start to play and then the, I literally had one person bump me off the piano stool so he could start to, <laughs> to, to, to play away and he was amazing. And we would do that every week, but every week he, he didn't recall that he played. Um, so to be able to draw upon that skill, I think, uh, can enhance quality of life, even with a diagnosis of dementia.
0: It is just, it's a remarkable thing, all these studies, because it just, the idea that, you know, we have friends right now and who their family does not really recognize them. They walk in the room and it's a child and an adult child who they've known all their life and there's no recognition. And yet to think that music could do what something visual with your own flesh and blood can't. It's, it's a pretty remarkable thing to contemplate.
3: It is. It is very powerful. Very powerful. Uh, that is,
0: Ra- that is Rachel Finnerty. Alice, uh, we love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this again today.
3: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take
0: care, uh, Rachel. Rachel is a music therapist and a, a lecturer, and a yeah, she does a lot of different things. And uh, yeah, it's it it is amazing. It's an amazing thing to think about that that. Well, I, you know, I'd love to hear if anyone listening has a family member who is in this position to try it. I mean, if you if you have the confidence to, again to walk into a, a room, it may feel kind of weird at first. But I'd love to hear someone send me an email afterwards if you try this with a family member who has dementia who's got memory loss whatever else and just start singing a familiar tune to them and see what happens especially if you just change the words and see if they responded i mean it sounds almost un- implausible and yet apparently as rachel says in so many studies not it works it's amazing the scott radley show weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML